following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Hey, we're going to jump into Ephesians today. Open your Bibles there. Um, let me just highlight a couple books that are going to be in the bookstore for you as we're talking about the Great Commission. Um, and some things that really fit with the the methodology and the way that we see evangelism and the Great Commission going out. This book by Mac, uh, J. Max Stiles called Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus, is one of the most practical, helpful ways to talk about how you talk about Jesus to your friends. There's another book that we're, I'm going to reference today in my sermon. It's called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. It's about how believers utilize their day-to-day regular relationships and their neighborhoods for the sake of the gospel. And then there's another one that I want to highlight for you. Some of you have maybe read a book called um, uh, Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. Her name was Ro- her name is Rosaria Butterfield. She was a lesbian in a lesbian relationship. She came to faith in Christ through a next-door neighbor who happened to be a pastor that would invite her and her lesbian partner over for dinner every week and dialogue with them about faith and life and all sorts of things, and she came to faith. But she didn't just come to faith, she later then married a Presbyterian pastor. And she's written two books, the first one I mentioned earlier, and then she wrote this book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's basically about her story and how God used biblical hospitality to help her come to faith. So those will be in the bookstore for you, and you'll hear a lot of this in my sermon today, all right? So a few weeks ago, we jumped into a series on the Great Commission, and and our passion for this really was to just talk about how we at CLF see our role in the Great Commission and to help you see your place in it. Um, some of it you you may not know that you're fulfilling in certain ways. One of the ways is by, it's an odd one, is like last Sunday, I was not in the pulpit, but Luis was, and this church was releasing Jill and I to be in Denver to speak to a whole nother congregation about the, the glories of marriage, a gospel-centered approach to marriage, and then preaching to that church from John 17 about the unity of the gospel. You may think to yourself, well, our pastor's not in our pulpit, therefore we shouldn't be in church. I could be just the opposite. Your pastor was in a pulpit. I would hope you were here helping pray for your pastor while I'm going to accomplish the Great Commission as a part of you as we're doing this stuff together. So the Great Commission gets accomplished in a variety of different ways. We want you to see not only the pastor's role in it, but we want you to see your role in the Great Commission. One of the challenges, and it's a significant challenge when we think of the Great Commission, is how big it is. I mean, think about how big the Great Commission is. Make disciples of all nations. It's lots of people, lots of nations, lots of places. And and if you don't know about you, I look around the world and I think things are just straight out crazy at times. So how does the Great Commission get accomplished from a little church in Roseburg, Oregon? How does God help us accomplish this? Another challenge with the Great Commission is probably most of us, if I were to spend a little bit of time with you, most of you would feel a lot of guilt in your own heart because you don't feel like you share the gospel enough. Chances are you think about the moments that you should have shared the gospel that you didn't, or you think that you're not bold or you're not courageous, and you're really not a person that does radical things. And to be honest with you, when I look at our world, most of our everyday life doesn't make room for radical things. 
I mean, think about it. It makes room for mundane things, ordinary things. We're busy trying to make a living. We're busy trying to provide for our families. Some of you are building brand new homes so you can stay in this community. Some of you have kids right now that are in school. You're in sports. You're in dance. You're in a million other activities. And when you finally get a day off, what do you want to do with your day off? You want to do what I did yesterday, which was just sit on my outside couch and watched soccer and football the entire day. Very enjoyable, right? You want to spend it with those that you love. So here, here's the question that this sermon, and really we started it last week to talk about, is how do we fulfill the Great Commission practically and locally? When we think of the Great Commission, we think of sending out people from the church to go to all parts of the different parts of the world, yet that's not, that's one part of the Great Commission, There is a local part of the Great Commission that we need to really get our mind and our hearts wrapped around. When we, when we jumped into this, into the sermon series on this, you, you might remember I made a comment. I said, I said we should be thinking and praying globally while we are acting locally. And last week Luis began to kind of draw some of those strings out and threads out about that. And one of the things that he talked about was sharing the gospel with our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and the strangers that God providentially places in our lives. And some things that Louis said were fascinating. He said, he said, it's not complicated. We don't have to make evangelism harder than it already is. Evangelism is just simply talking to people about the person we love the most, which is Jesus. And he also says it doesn't have to look successful. Meaning that, that none of us are making notches on our Bible like an old west gunslinger, right? I mean, you know, checking on the box of how many people we had to share the gospel with. To be honest with you, this may surprise you, maybe it won't. Um, I only failed one class in college, and it was personal evangelism. And the reason I failed the class is because I did not like the approach that I was graded upon how many people I shared the gospel with and how many people came to faith. I had a real issue with that. It really bothered me. And so I had a debate with my professor on we sow seed, and I was sowing seed every day of my life, and I was watering seed, but God brought the increase. And I wasn't about to just mark names in a book and say, here, just so I could get a letter grade. And so it was something I failed. Yet what Luis said last week was the very thing I just mentioned, that we're looking at our lives and just seeing sharing the gospel can be something we do everywhere, and we trust God to turn hearts to people. It doesn't have to look successful, like somebody is giving you a badge for what you've done. Also, he said something else. He said, evangelism doesn't have to be a failure, meaning we can sow gospel seeds everywhere we go and entrust God to do the work. We just love other people. We serve them. We sow the gospel here. We water there, and we trust God to turn hearts. So what I want to do today is just talk about the practical nature of the Great Commission. I want to continue the thought that Louis had, and here's what I want to see. Here's our big idea for today. The Great Commission happens as Christians universally and locally demonstrate and declare the gospel of Jesus. Let me read that again. The Great Commission happens as Christians universally and locally demonstrate and declare the gospel of Jesus. Now, to do this, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a a big macro picture of the Great Commission. I want to look at it. The Great Commission's work universally, meaning all over the world and all time. I want to look at it historically. We're going to do that very briefly. Kind of give us a flyover because that's important. Because if you can see what God has been doing in his world since the beginning, 
you'll kind of stop freaking out over things that are going on in your world currently. It'll get, it'll help you settle down. The other reason thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the gospel and the Great Commission in shoe leather. Just on the ground level locally in Roseburg, Oregon, how do we zero in on what God wants us to be doing? And then we're just going to commit to a few things as we look at the end of the sermon. Just say, man, Lord, I just want to think about some things as we talk through applying this particular sermon. Okay, so we're going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. So let's stand together and let's read that together. I'll read it, you follow along, and then we're going to pray for the preaching of God's word as we get done. Ephesians 4, verse 7, this is the reading of God's word, and Paul wrote these words. He said, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when it when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have had a plan from the beginning. And thank you that nothing's going to thwart you from accomplishing your plan. And thank you that you have infused your gospel with power and that you have given your church promises, and that your work will never fail. As you said in the book of Isaiah, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would infuse us with hope, that you would empower us by your spirit, that we would be people that see our work right where we are at for the sake of the gospel. And I pray that, Lord, you'd specifically make things very clear to each of us because you've got a calling on each of our lives to serve you and represent you in this world. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right. So let's jump into the very first point in your outline, which is the Great Commission, historical and universal. If you were with us from the beginning, you remember when we looked at Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, we noticed that it was fulfilling something in the Old Testament. Now I'm going to point out, Three passages of scripture, one in the beginning of the Bible, one in, say, the middle of the, or the beginning of the New Testament, and one at the end of the Bible to give you a big view of what God has been doing. In Genesis chapter 12, God gave a promise to Abraham and the people of Israel, and he said that they are to be a blessing to all nations. This meant that God's intention for Israel was to bless people from every language, every nation, and every people group of the world. God did not intend for his blessing to be isolated to a geographic location on a map. God wanted it to go all over the world. 
So that's why you read things in your Bible, like a famous verse, like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the world to all people groups that God sent his son, Jesus. And you'll notice in Luis's sermon last week out of John chapter 4, that Jesus was interacting with a Samaritan woman, a non-Jewish person that he was bringing to her the gospel of Jesus, showing her that Jesus was the king of non-Jews as well as the Jews. So when Jesus gave us the Great Commission, which is the second text I want you to notice at the beginning of the New Testament, we saw how Genesis 12 was being fulfilled through Jesus' people who will go make disciples of all nations. Now what's intriguing is Jesus was a Jew, so he came from Abraham's people. So we could say that Abraham blessed all nations and Abraham's people blessed all nations by giving us Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus was giving birth to the New Testament church. R.C. Sproul, writing on Matthew 28, said this, Where then was the universal blessing that God had promised to Abraham? Jesus did not take the gospel to all nations to the world personally. He left that task for his bride, the church. We see in this passage that that is before us in this chapter. With that, the promise God had made to Abraham began to be fulfilled. And it is still being fulfilled today as the church carries out its mission. Now, what's interesting is we know from the New Testament, as we'll look at more in a moment, that this is exactly what the Christians did. But let me just give you something to marvel at for a moment. You and I know that the Great Commission was fulfilled and being done because you're sitting in this seat today in the church, in America, in a non-Jewish place. If the New Testament church had not done what Jesus had told them to do, we would not have churches planted worldwide. We would not be here and the gospel never would have proceeded beyond the nation of Israel. So for a moment, just marvel at this. You are a fruit of the Great Commission being done around the world. It's because Jesus has authority over heaven and earth. And it's because, according to Romans 1, the gospel has been infused with heavenly power to save people from every walk of life, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it's also because, in Matthew 16, Jesus promised that his church, universal and historical, will never be destroyed and never be stopped because Jesus is faithful to it. So you and I are here because Matthew 28 is being worked out, Matthew 16 is true, and Romans chapter 1 is true. And you can say amen to that. Now, one advantage that we have over the hearers who were standing on that hill in Galilee in Matthew 28 is that we have a picture of the end. It's very intriguing what the book of Revelation writes about the end. And you'll notice language that you cannot miss. Revelation 7 put it like this. As John is getting this vision of what's going on in heaven, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Notice the language. From every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, the grand vision of what God has been doing historically and universally is this. God is bringing people from every walk of life, every part of the world, to an understanding, to a belief, to a a transformational grasp that Jesus Christ is their Savior, their Master, and their King. And and He utilizes His universal church, meaning Christians from every, every nation, every church, every denomination, every time and every place, to accomplish this through His power. That's the... That's the big picture. See, you, you've got to get in your mind that the gospel's work is not simply about what God is doing or not doing in America. You've got, you've got to get a grander vision. Your vision has got to be from all peoples at the beginning to all peoples at the end. And in between, you've got nations, tribes, and tongues all hearing locally and seeing locally the work of the gospel through Christian people like yourselves. That's the 30,000 foot flyover. And the reason we need to see this is it has got to get into our spiritual DNA. It has got to get into our minds and our hearts so that when we read the Bible, we don't myopically throw just ourselves into it. Nor when we read the newspaper, do we freak out that God isn't working. No, 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 no. God has been working from the beginning of time and he will keep working till the end of time to accomplish his great mission. Is that clear with everybody? That's the grand vision, right? Now, let's take the grand vision and let's just put it in shoe leather. I'm a very practical dude. I I don't, I like big ideas, but I want to go, okay, how does that big idea help me right now living in Glide, Oregon, pastoring a church in Roseburg, Oregon, and affecting the people that I love the most, my church and my Family, not in that order, right? Make sure that's clear. That's the second point. The Great Commission, local and practical. This is why I started us in, in the book of Ephesians. I want you to notice some key elements of the book of Ephesians that that I don't want you to miss. The first one is, and it just sounds interesting, but this was this book was written to a local church, just like us. It's like Paul takes the Great Commission, the 30,000-foot flyover that Paul has had the joy of being a part of, and he says, zeroes it in to this little small church in Ephesus and says to them, let's talk about how the local church is to accomplish the Great Commission. It's like Paul just zeroes in. And if we could, just for a moment... Take the book of Ephesians and just, if you, I mean, this, I'm not, this isn't sacrilege, but just change the name. Covenant Life Fellowship, Roseburg, Oregon, chapter four, verse seven. And just zero the target, overlay the target onto our church and our sanctuary right where we are today. And you're going to notice some things. You notice that Paul would tell us that God has given to each person a grace, a measure of grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Another way to phrase this that that the linguist would tell us is that Christ, or God, has individually gifted every Christian according to the measure that Christ determines each Christian needs to have for that gift. 
And Christ has given leaders, pastors, evangelists, teachers, prophets, apostles, as a gift to every church, and those leaders are to equip or prepare or serve the church, who then, the saints, go do works of ministry. Now, we'll look more about these works of ministry in a moment, but what is implied in these works of ministry is that they're connected to the gifts and the measure of grace that Christ has given to each and every one of his people sitting in the room. Meaning that to accomplish the Great Commission, God gives the local church leaders who equip God's people so that they can represent Jesus with the gifts that God has given them in the world and the places that they live in. And Paul wrote that this, this equipping, it builds the body of Christ. And it helps the body grow to maturity. It brings stability because they're no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And it help, uh, helps us declare the gospel. And he uses the phrase, speaking the truth in love so we can declare the gospel and we can demonstrate the gospel to others because notice what the body's doing. The body, as each part's doing its thing, is building itself up and growing in unity together in love. See, the local church's role is this. God gifted Christians with individually different gifts. The leaders in that church are to equip Christians to use their gifts for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel so they can speak the truth of the gospel in love to other people and help the church grow in unity and love for one another. We could put it another way. The church's leaders are to make disciples who will in turn go make disciples. See, you are not just a pew sitter when you come to church on a Sunday morning. You are being equipped to go make disciples of all nations, and your nation might be Rose Street. Your nation might be Umco Valley Christian School. Your nation might be might be the field that you're logging that afternoon. I want you to notice something about the passage in Ephesians. It takes every one of us. Every person playing their part, using their God-given gifts on the ground, fulfilling the Great Commission. This is why at CLF you're going to notice something very fascinating, and I hope you're picking this up as we go along or as you get to know us a little bit. We don't believe in in an evangelism program is complete enough. So simply saying, we've got a spot for you to go share the gospel to us is not complete enough. We believe that we all need to see ourselves more than just evangelists. We need to see ourselves as disciple makers. We don't want to have a disciple making program. No, 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 that's too small. We want a disciple making people. Does everybody see the difference? See, if we have a disciple making program, the church can go, yeah, we're, we're disciple makers. See our program? and not be a part of it. No, what we're saying is, God has called you, members of CLF, every one of you, every last drop of you, every one of you that's raising children in your home, or your kids are gone, every one of you are to be disciple makers, and when you come to church on a Sunday, it's our job to equip you to go be a disciple maker. See, that that's the difference of how it looks. Now, what's fascinating is, how does this disciple making get played out in the New Testament church? We need to see that. How how did they do this? Because it tells us 
What makes for faithful disciple making? So let's look at the New Testament a little bit just to clarify some of this. Now, the book of Acts is perhaps the best place to start when you look at this. In that book, like no other book, you're going to notice something fascinating. The book, the, the gospel goes from Jerusalem to the end of the earth, which for them was Rome. And it does it all in one book. It's 28 chapters. Now, in case you need to understand what this is, the book of Acts is 28 chapters and it takes 30 years to accomplish. It's like the Sports Center top 10 highlights. It's what it's like. So if you think for one moment that every day of your life should look like Acts chapter 2, you're missing the whole point. That was a highlight moment to say, let's look at the power of the gospel in people and see what God did. Boom. And they go, wow, that's inspiring. Look at that moment. And that gospel went from house to house to house. Now you're going to find something interesting in the book of Acts is that there is a little over 50 different occurrences of people sharing the gospel. In 30 of those occasions, the people shared the gospel with either, were either in a religious location, like a synagogue or the temple, where people were graciously reasoning with people who expected, listen clearly, expected spiritual conversation. Or they were invited by somebody to just share the gospel. In 30 occasions of the over, just a little over 50 moments. And when you're going to notice something fascinating is when they landed in a new town. So Paul went from town to town to town. Virtually every time they landed in a new town, they went right to a synagogue. You know, why would they do that? Because the early disciples were what? They were Jewish. Where did the people that there were their people hang out? They were Jewish and they went to a synagogue and they were discussing spiritual things and the people they could relate to in this moment. You'll notice something fascinating in Acts chapter 17 when Paul talking about Paul going to a new town. It says he went to a synagogue and notice the phrase in verse two, as was his custom. Meaning Paul did this everywhere he went. Now, I cross-checked this with a friend of Robert Sidlow's, who is a Nigerian serving with an organization called Capro, who goes to, they go to unengaged people groups all across the African continent. So you can imagine some of the violence that these people might see, as well as some of the wisdom that they need to utilize when they go in to share the gospel with people. And I asked him, I said, what do you see when you look at the book of Acts and you see them engaging their cultures with the gospel? And he just said this, oh, they always went to the synagogue. I said, really, why? He said, because those are the people they knew they could relate with. And there was spiritual conversation already happening in that synagogue. So they went there to find out about the customs of the town that they were in, to hear about all the cultures that were happening in the town that they were in. So they could begin engaged as well with the people that they knew and who desired religious conversation. What's intriguing is I said to him, so when you're going to a new town, Where do you get take your lead? And he said, well, why would I not take my lead from the Apostle Paul? Which seems to me like a wise plan. I mean, I don't know. You're going to notice something in the book of Acts. You're going to notice they were building relational bridges all the time for the sake of the gospel in areas where people expected to talk about spiritual things. Okay, so that's 30 of the occasions in the book of Acts. In several evangelism moments in the book of Acts, Something out of the ordinary happened as they were just going about doing their business. 
right? The apostles are just walking along life, and all of a sudden there's this dude outside the gate called Beautiful that says, hey, I need, would you give me some alms? And Peter says what? Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I given to you? In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks, and read the text very clearly. It says that Peter and John were just kind of moseying into the temple. All of a sudden they turned around and realized people are shocked. Like this dude who has been lame is now well. And Peter thinks, huh, I better share the gospel here. So he shares the gospel. You see these miraculous moments that just suddenly intervene. Or they're just going about their business, and they come across someone who says, like Philip, with the Ethiopian eunuch, who just so happens to be reading Isaiah chapter 53, the greatest messianic chapter in the entire Bible. And Philip says, what are you reading? He says, Psalm 53, how do I, what is this? He's talking about low-hanging fruit for the gospel. In three instances in the book of Acts, you're going to notice people observed, this is fascinating, what was happening among the Christians as they related with one another. And from that occurrence, that observation of their love for each other, self selfishly giving up their possessions to serve one another's needs, you're going to notice that opened up doors for the gospel. Let me just give them to you so you can prove them on your own. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Acts chapter 4, 32 through 30 through 34. Acts chapter 5, 13 through 14. A few times, people came to hear them share the gospel or ask them to share more about the gospel, especially in moments when they were giving a defense of the gospel because they'd been arrested. Think about Paul before Felix. Or when Paul gets under house arrest at the end of the book of uh, Acts, you're going to notice something fascinating. Everybody who came to him, Paul couldn't get out. He couldn't go share the gospel. They were coming to him to hear more about the way. Now, there are a couple moments in the book of Acts that were just simply told they went and they preached the word in a particular spot. We don't know much about the spot. We know like Philip preached in Samaria. We don't know if the audience was Jew or Gentile, nor do we know the venue. So we got to be honest about it. We just don't know that. But I want you to notice, there's only two of them. So here's what you notice when you read the book of Acts this way. You notice in the book of Acts the overwhelming standard approach was engaging people graciously, going to locations where people expected spiritual conversation, unless God intervened with a miracle or something that needed to be testified of, or a guy says, can you tell me more about the gospel? The normal work was relational. It was connecting with people. It was reasoning with them in religious centers or being invited to speak. And the reason for this, now listen clearly, was they were not looking to make converts. They were looking to make disciples. Now, friends, listen, I'm going to tell you, as a disciple maker myself, disciple making is long term. Disciple making takes time. And disciple making is distinctly relational. That's why at CLF, listen, we are attempting to equip you to build relational bridges with people in your relational spheres. It's why we're encouraging you to build friendships with non-Christians, and we're encouraging you, not only encouraging you, we're challenging you to be a blessing to your community, not a curse. 
We also believe that we do this together as a church, as a congregation, because our relationships, how we interact together matters to the gospel. I said to my wife on Friday, as I was getting ready to leave the house, I said, listen, as CLF grows, the burden of my heart is this, as we get farther and farther away from our leadership team, that our people do not see the burden to do the little things of the gospel well, that just simply say, if I smell an offense, I'm going for it and I'm going to deal with that. Otherwise, we just become no different than every little divisive location that you can go to. If we're going to grow and be truly gospel-centered, we have got to do the little things well for the sake of the gospel. That's why we believe in faithful plotting and sowing and watering gospel seeds everywhere and in every way. Listen, we firmly believe that God uses a variety of methods to bring people to Christ. And we believe that God will bring people to Christ. Why? This is the methodology of the New Testament. People engaging people graciously. People loving and serving other people. And when the opportunity arises, when we're asked, when we're even invited, and some moments when God just shows up, we just share the good news of Jesus because we love him. Now, that's not all there is in the New Testament. That's just the book of Acts. When you look at the letters of the New Testament, we're given some very clear commands of how we're to engage non-Christians. Notice Colossians chapter 4 says, walk in wisdom with toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer. You ought to answer each person. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it how? With gentleness and respect. And then Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor. He says, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice, as those Verses flashed on the screen that in every engagement with a non-Christian, or we could call them, the Bible calls them, an outsider, or with those who ask you for a reason of the hope within you, or with your opponents, notice the posture. You notice gentleness, gracious speech, wisdom, patience, and respect. In other words, to quote Bill Hurd, which is one of my favorite quotes I've recently heard from Bill, I take a lot of notes from Bill and Mike Keller in particular. Here's what Bill said. We cannot accomplish the Great Commission by violating the golden rule, which the golden rule is just treat other people the way you want to be treated. This is why at CLF you will talk about us a lot, telling you very clearly, do not be shocked by the sins of the Genesis 3 world you live in. As Americans and American Christians, and many of you who have grown up in this nation for all of your life, you are shell-shocked that your nation could be where she is today. And you just it just shocks you. But I want to give you a statement that has settled me down so often. Sinners are going to sin because they're sinners. And so it shouldn't shock us when a nation has made a turn away from the things of God and we see sin happening. What that does for you, it postures you correctly to not be reactionary and not to be provocative. 
It allows you to keep your heads. It allows you to be measured and mature and godly and Christ-like and gentle and peaceable and kind. And we believe that respect for the other person made in the image of God who's living a completely different moral life than we are would go a long way to helping them hear and see the gospel of Christ. But that's not all there is in the New Testament. The other thing you'll notice about the New Testament is the meaningful example of Christians living, listen, normal everyday lives representing Christ and doing good things. Jesus himself said it. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Meaning, they're close enough to observe you. Or Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Just stop there for a moment and let that settle in on your soul about the things you read this morning and you're grumbling and disputing, right? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of, what are you in the midst of? A crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world when you're not grumbling and complaining like everybody else. Or Titus chapter 2, speaking of bond service, we could put this as employees are to be submissive to their own bosses and everything. We could say that in a variety of areas. And we're, we're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything, listen to this, we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You notice, don't you, this observation of good works from non-Christians seeing Christians do good works or have good attitudes so that as Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Or I can put it another way. God doesn't need your good character, but your neighbor does. Now, these are just examples of what Scripture clearly tells us. But here's the other piece we don't talk about enough is there are normal everyday people listed in the Bible that never get the headlines. I think about Lydia, this faithful, godly woman who was met by Paul, heard the gospel, she led a prayer meeting, and that prayer meeting turned into the church in Philippi. What do you know about Lydia? What do you know about Lydia? Not much. Or what about this guy? His name is Herodian. Who's Herodian? Herodian was just a faithful Jewish friend of Paul that Paul wrote about at the end of Romans and just said, hey, tell Herodian hello. A faithful brother. What you're going to find is Paul, Peter, James, they get the headlines. But there are normal, everyday, regular Christians living in the Bible, listed in the Bible, who don't get the broad stuff and who are faithfully fulfilling the Great Commission right where they lived. Now, what is intriguing again about each of these texts I brought up about how we treat non-Christians is you'll notice how close non-Christians were to observe how clearly they knew us well enough to ask a question. You'll find phrases like good works, like gentleness, respect, kindness, and you'll find in each one of them a relational component to every one of them. And Christians were relating with non-Christians in such a way that non-Christians could see your good works, see their Christ-like character, and be willing to know you weren't, you weren't a threat for them to ask questions of. You were a friend. You're a person they could trust. 
Somebody could say, hey, I got some questions about how Christians act in this world. Can I ask you about that? Let me show you something, though, compelling, because sorry, some of you are saying, okay, that's all great. But what about Jesus? It's a great question. And Dave Quilla sent us this this week as he was reading through the book, A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. Listen to this quote very clearly. There are three ways the New Testament completes the sentence, the Son of Man came. And just so you know, I did the research on this, and he's accurate. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came, has come, eating and drinking. Hmm. The first two are statements of purpose. Why Jesus came. The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. Tim Chester continues, if I pull down the books on mission and church planting, we could even say on evangelism or disciple making, I can read about contextualization, evangelism matrices, postmodern apologetics, and cultural hermeneutics. Really big terms that we train our people on how to do. I can look at all the diagrams and tell them how people can be converted or discover the steps required to plant a church. It all sounds impressive and cutting edge and sophisticated, but this is how Luke describes Jesus' mission strategy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, what's intriguing is if you go to Luke chapter 7, verse 34, and you read this statement, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, you'll find something interesting following it. Jesus says, talking to the Pharisees, and you say to him, speaking of the Son of Man, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Tim Chester on this point comments that Luke isn't just talking about eating and drinking in this passage. He is talking about Jesus being so serious to build through relationships, through eating and drinking, that his own enemies accused him of doing both in excess. Meaning, Jesus was doing this a lot. Now, we know he wasn't doing eating and drinking in excess, but we could say, couldn't we? He might have been building relationships in excess. But he seemed to be eating and drinking as a point of building relationships for the sake of the gospel. Now, those of you that are hospitable know the moment of this when you have people in your home and you're eating and the privilege of being able to talk through and dialogue as you're together over a meal. And you'll notice that Jesus did this kind of stuff all over the New Testament. He hung out with sinners. John 4, last week, he spoke to the Samaritan woman that his disciples were like, are you sure you should be talking to her? He built relationships with people to engage them with the good news. He was relational from the beginning. So when you take Ephesians 4 and this walk through the New Testament that we've just done, here's what we find regarding the local church's role in the Great Commission and thinking and praying globally while acting locally. Every Christian, that's you, that's me, has been gifted by God to serve God in his mission. God has placed every Christian In strategic locations, nations, cities, neighborhoods, families, schools, workplaces, you get the point. And every Christian has unique hobbies and unique interests to serve God and his particular mission. And every local church, that's ours, has been providentially placed by God in cities and in towns and in nations. And God has given those local churches leaders by Christ who make disciples so that their people do what? Go make disciples. The church's leaders 
are to do the work of ministry alongside the other Christians, but their primary task is to equip God's people for the works of ministries that they are living it out in their neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, activities, cities, and nations. You get the point. And here's how practical this is. Just last week, I was having dinner with a couple who recently begin to see their neighborhood as a place of ministry. They told me a story. I won't give you all the details for the sake of how they're dealing with it, but they're living next door to some people who do not live the same moral standards that they do as Christians. They decided that what they would do, since these people work long hours, they would make extra food, and then just when those people came home, they would text them and say, hey, we've got extra food for you if you want to come over and share it with us. And they begin to just engage these people in friendship by taking food to them and inviting them over for dinner. And sometimes it got so late or the people came home tired that they would just sit out by the fire pit and they would just talk. It brought about conversations where they speak about God's word and the gospel to these friends. Matter of fact, these two moral friends or immoral friends were asking about a conflict between the two of them. And this couple was helping them navigate through that with biblical principles. They're sowing and they're watering, trusting God to turn their hearts, using their home as their mission focus. I know of a businessman in our church with a knack of helping people develop businesses. He sees his part in the Great Commission as being great at his job, and he's good at it. By talking to people about biblical principles for business without using spiritual language and then using those moments to bring the gospel to bear. I know of people in our church in the timber industry who visit with log truck drivers as they drop off logs and they know their lives, know their stories. They visit with log scalers and they begin to know them personally and they've had chances to pray for them and they've had chances to share the gospel with them. I know of coaches and teachers who look at and are engaging students and families in such a way that they see each of those as a part of the mission field that God has placed them in. And listen, I know of faithful moms and dads who every night try to demonstrate and declare the gospel of Jesus to their kids, and they try to do the same with the families they're connecting with in their homeschool co-ops or their kids' activities for the sake of the gospel. And what you're going to find is this. The more you see yourself as a representative of Christ, wherever God has placed you, the more you will see your need for equipping because you're going to get asked questions you have no idea how to answer. So what that does for you is two things. It causes you to come to church to get equipped and ask your pastors, I don't know how to answer this question. It kicks us into gear to do our job. And then it helps you see your need for the support of Christian friends who you say, dude, I need you to pray for this person because I'm sharing the gospel with them and they're asking me questions I don't know what to do with. And suddenly the church is working together in the mission of the gospel. See, here's my point. The everyday, regular, mundane, and ordinary work of the Great Commission happens at your doorstep and everywhere you go. So let's let's commit ourselves to this. Let's think this through. What would God call you to right now? Just think this out with me. And the first thing I would just challenge us to do is commit yourself to pray for non-Christians in your life. In your bulletin, you've got a bulletin in front of you. There's a spot to write down one or two names. You may have more of them. It may be your kids. It may be that 12-year-old living in your home right now. It may be your brother-in-law. 
write down their names and then pray specifically that God would bring them to Christ. Pray that God would open doors for you to share the gospel with them. Pray that you would represent Christ well to them. Pray as well for this. Pray for these random, ordinary, out of the ordinary moments that all of a sudden God shows up and it's like, uh uh-oh, God's here. I can't tell you the amount of non-Christian friends I've had that as I prayed for them, I had one friend in particular sharing the gospel with him and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. I said, can I pray with you before we're done? He said, yeah, yeah, go for it, man. So I, I prayed and I said, hey, Lord, thank you for this guy. I pray that he'd come to faith. If he doesn't come to faith, God, I just pray you make his life so miserable and awful that God, he would ask me about the, and he said, he goes, Hey, stop that, man. I said, why, why, why? You don't believe in the God I'm praying to, right? I mean, stop. And I said, no, 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 we're going to keep, Dave, that's not cool, man. And sure enough, years later, disaster struck. And this guy needed some hope. Now, am I sad that I prayed some of those things? Yeah. I'm not sad that he came face to face with the risen Christ. See, pray, pray for God to intervene, pray for God to show up, pray for miracles to happen that would help you expose the gospel to these people. The second thing I just encourage you with is commit to demonstrating and declaring the gospel. And here's what I want to say to you. We talked about this in our staffing this last week. We as Christians are so segmented. We think this is our church life, so we act Christianly. Then tomorrow morning we get up to go to work and we act like workers. Can I just ask you to get rid of that whole facade and start realizing you're a child of God everywhere you go? And so ask yourself some questions. What are attitudes in your life that don't match Christ's mission? Are you hospitable? Why has God given you the home he's given you? Why has God given you the location of your neighbors? Do you walk in self-righteousness where you think you're always better than other people and you're just looking down your nose at sinners? Are you unloving? Do you care for people? And, and write down just on your, just a sin area that just needs adjusting in your life. If you are going to demonstrate and declare the gospel, maybe for you, it's just simply, dude, I got, I got to stop love and comfort so darn much that I actually pick my head up and I notice that there's people around me. Another thing I would say to you is maybe this is a family discussion. Maybe for you, you and your kids, you need to sit down with your kids and say, Hey, How can we represent Jesus better in our neighborhood? What can we do together? How do we need to grow together to demonstrate, declare Christ together? And think of ways to engage people who don't know Jesus. How can you use your home, your hobbies, and your activities of your family, that your family's involved in for the sake of the gospel? Are you intentional at the soccer game? Or do you purposely plant yourself in the far corner so everybody will leave you alone? The third thing, and this is just a statement of commitment. There's a little phrase in your bulletin that says, I represent Christ with an underline of blank. Name the place, activity, or venue that you say, I, I want to represent Christ. It could be work. It could be school. It could be your neighborhood. It could be the golf course. It could be the sports field. It could be wherever you are. And then as a way of accountability and commitment to Christ, write it down. But there's one other step I just want to encourage you to take. In the lobby today, we have three little whiteboards that are set up with this statement on it. I represent Christ, line. Write it in there. Get your your picture taken beside it as a point of accountability. 
We're not going to call you out and send it on your Instagram feed and say, look what they did. We're not going to do that. It's just a point of saying, as a family, I, as, a, as connected to this group of people, I want to be held accountable to represent Jesus. Think of the ways that you can engage people with the gospel. It's a way of telling others around you in your church, I want to represent Christ. See, that's out in the foyer. So before you leave, write it down. Commit yourself. Get your family around it and point to it. Like, you know, my kids are telling me I'm going to do this, right? Do that. Or you can say, I'm not bringing my kids into this. They are like like brutal on accountability. I totally get that. But involve, But get practical with it. See, listen, the goal is to help people who don't know Jesus to see their need for Jesus. And we do that one moment and one relational interaction at a time. Now, what we've seen today is clear, haven't we? The Great Commission happens as Christians universally and locally demonstrate and declare the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Now, as we're praying and you got your head before the Lord, it's a good time right now to just ask the Lord, God, who are these, who are the one or two people in my life that need Jesus? And as you're writing those names down, pray for them. <clears throat> pray that God would bring them to faith. Pray that God would grant opportunities to share the gospel. Pray that God would open up unique doors for the sake of the gospel. Pray that God would do the miraculous. But then also ask the Lord, where, Lord, where are areas in my life that I'm just not open my, my attitude in my heart is not conducive to the Great Commission. And just write those sins down. And confess those as sin and ask God to give you power to change. He will. He will help you. And then where's the place that you need to represent Christ? You know, Dad, some of you, it just may be in your home. You, you realize you need to point your, your children to Jesus and you just haven't done it. Maybe moms, it's it's in that homeschool co-op. Maybe it's with a, a, a group of people that you're working with every day at work and you need to engage them with the gospel or at least demonstrate Christ to them and you find yourself grumbling all the time. Write that place down. Father, we we thank you that there's a worldwide universal mission, but we thank you that it's landed at our doorstep. We, we want to play our part locally while, while thinking and praying globally, knowing that you're doing a global work using us in the local world that we live in. I pray by your grace that you would bring the names of people on our pages today to Christ. I pray for that son and daughter. I pray for that husband and wife. I pray, I pray for the in-laws. I pray for the friendships. I even pray, Lord, for the enemies that are represented on that page, that you would bring them to Christ. And I pray that our hearts would be adjusted so that we would demonstrate and declare your gospel and we would do it faithfully.
And then, Father, I pray as so many people are here today that there is a there's a representation in so many different parts of this community that the gospel, if we would get a grasp of this work, Lord, you, you would affect areas of our community radically in a short time because of the work of the gospel and your people. I pray for schools and workplaces and neighborhoods to be to have representatives of Christ right in their midst and let our people demonstrate and declare this gospel for your glory and the good of all people from all time and all nations and that those people in our own neighborhoods will be gathering on the, around the throne of Jesus at the end with us celebrating this gospel and glorious good news of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.